Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, today, we'll be speaking from Luke chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. The title of the sermon is Jesus Praises the Widow and Her Offerings. So let's look at the text. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner, and those of us that have gathered together, that each one of us needs your gospel to transform our hearts, that we, Lord God, would not trust in our piety, but instead in your grace, that our worth secured by your finished work. And may that become beautiful to our church daily. In Jesus' name, amen. I have heard recently that our young men are all very excited about purchasing bikes after last week's sermon, and the older men are telling them to wait for a Tesla. And the young men are saying, easy for you to say, because you already have a bike. Can't we have both? It's so life-giving to know that our sermons are reaching the next generation. You know, looking at the Bible and its text, it's meant to capture our hearts and continue to remain with us. And the men who continue to look at the text and wrestle through what the meanings are, they've been so life-giving as I have been preparing for this text. And so as I looked at this text, which is only four verses, I was like, what can I preach about? Give, give generously. All right, let's go home, right? And so I looked at the commentators and they were pointing to the fact that Luke's usage of the two juxtaposed narratives as a natural comparative literary device. I was like, what does that mean? What ties in these two narratives? There is a common element that should allow us to say there's something that he's trying to address that is far greater than what we think these four verses are telling us. That this story of the rich giving out of their abundance and the poor widow giving so little, the heart of the message isn't focused on the amount that we should give to God, but something far more important. So it is way too simple to conclude that God demands we give until it hurts. The larger context is Jesus' address of the whole system of leadership over God's people who are not obeying their calling to protect and provide for the most vulnerable, but instead using those under their care for their selfish benefits and comfort. Comparison of the two stories highlights the common element in both. In this case, the connection comes down to the widow, the poorest of poor widow, and we'll discuss why this is central in our second point. What ties the two stories is a glimpse into the life of all of the widows and the poorest of poor in contrast to the life of the privileged and the powerful. On this case, the leaders of God's people. So Luke 21 must be viewed in light of Luke chapter 20. So let me read you the context right before. 
Luke 20, 45 through 47 says this, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, so he not only addressed his disciples as he was talking to them, but he wanted everyone to hear who was at the temple. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour the widows' houses, and there's the connector, and for the pretense, make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. There are drastic differences in how these two parties experience life. The rich and the scribes and the one and the same enjoy a life in which they are powerful and privileged in society. Their position means they get to determine how much to give and how much to take. It is a life defined by choice. You decide. Whatever you want to give, whatever you want to take, unhindered choice is the power of the privileged. I'm going to say that again. Unhindered choice is the power of the privileged. The widows living at the mercy of the provision of the temple and the generosity of the rich, she in turn lives a life defined by the choice made by other people for her her life provisions and protection. She is literally at the mercy of the choices made by those who are privileged and in power. Her life is one of absolute dependence. Dependence on the system, dependence on the choice of the rich and the powerful, the mercy of other people's choices. You know, I remember as a kid walking by the dumpster next to our apartment and, you know, we lied about how many people are in our family so we can get into, you know, the apartments because we had too many people in our families. And I remember walking by the dumpster, and my dad was like, let's go to the dumpster. And I was like, what the? You know, and he was like, Bobby, I want you to climb the dumpster and go get the thing inside the dumpster. And I was like, uh, okay, Father. You know, and I was like, I didn't know dads were allowed to do this. And I went in, and I grabbed the stuff that he was telling me, like, over there, over there, grab the dumpster. And then he was like, we're going to paint it, and then we're going to put it in our house. What was a choice for people who either wanted to keep the item or they're done with it and throw it away became something that we needed for our house. My friend had the choice to ask their parents for Nike flights or Reebok pumps. My older brother and I had no choice but to accept the British Knights from Marshalls. I remember the giant block of cheese in our freezer that we peeled every time we wanted to eat a sandwich, a grilled cheese sandwich that we loved because we couldn't buy the individually wrapped cheese made by Kraft. The same cheese that my little girls look at and go, ew, daddy, I don't like the cheese. Ours was a life of dependence in every way, not one of choice. Only the privileged and powerful get to make choices. This is the context for what Jesus wanted to address. Jesus, the first point, calls out the systemic oppression and the false piety. First, we find in our text that it was the week of the Passover, so pilgrims from all over Israel would make their way to Jerusalem to pay their vows to God. 
There would be about 13 boxes at the temple, and they would have a narrow slit on top for the coins, and much like our COVID offering box in the back, but they didn't have online virtual giving like we have. So everyone would have to give their offering to God using the coins that they had. Each person would stand before one and put in their offering, their coins. The sound of each coin clanging would be an indicator of how much they were putting in. The small copper coins won't make as much noise as the more substantial, heavy denarius made out of silver. And so here is an image of the copper coin. No one took time. They barely stamped some kind of image on it. It was mixed with a bunch of other metals. You couldn't really tell what it was. It almost looked like dirt. But that was all the widow ever had. And the next coin was a beautiful silver coin stamped out in the image of the emperor. It was heavy. It was substantial. You would hear it as people walk, and as they put it in, they would know. The impure copper coin, useless and disregarded, much like the widow, would be walked over by the privileged. So those who were quick would be noticed for their brevity when they were giving. But those who gave a lot would stand before the box and coin after coin after coin, they would hear the metal clanging and everyone would know who was giving a lot and who was giving a little. Imagine the scene at the temple of so many onlookers and the rich making the show coin after coin, bang and clang after clang, and the widow knew that her offering wouldn't count for anything because it would make no noise before the people. But scripture tells us that Jesus was not impressed by those who gave so much. Biblical scholar Joel Green, he comments, and thus does Luke draw attention to a system, the temple treasury itself, set up in such a way that it feeds those who cannot fend for themselves. What is worse, because it is the temple treasury, it has an inherent claim to divine legitimation. How could it be involved in injustice? It is God's own house that has fallen into the hands of those who use it for injustice. The calling of the leaders and the temple treasury were to be used to provide for the most vulnerable among them, especially the widows who have no other means to provide for themselves in the economy. But instead of leaders using their positions of power, they consumed even the very little that these widows and the vulnerable had. The very house of God abused and used the people for their own comfort while leveraging the divine requirements of God by showcasing false displays of piety and giving. God created a system in which those who are in power are to protect those who are most vulnerable and needy among them. They were told, when you collect the food, don't collect all of it. Leave it for the poor to come behind so that they can eat of it and know that God has taken care of them. Jesus addresses the systemic oppression of the poor and how those placed in power to protect and love were not doing it. So he immediately follows up with the prophecy that he will take down this system. 
And that system will be represented by this temple and what everyone believes will stand forever. And Luke 21, 5, 6, he says, and while some were still speaking at the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will be thrown down. Jesus has come to replace it with one where there are no buildings that confine God's kingdom. But his people will be the true temple. A city on a hill that can't be contained by a system or a building. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? God's people will carry his justice in their hearts because the Holy Spirit will indwell in God's people for they are the true temple. They are not isolated to a system of corruption, though they themselves will be placed in every place across the world and the kingdom will be far greater than anyone can pinpoint to a building or a place. Scribes are used by Jesus to highlight how his leaders used the system to devour the house of the widows. What does it mean that they devoured the house of the widows? They took advantage of the system and their leadership and the attention to make themselves more comfortable. The first charge to them, they wore long robes that a working man would never be able to wear or afford. They wanted the respectful greetings. And I remember working at the Korean church, sometimes my neck would hurt from bowing to all the older people, like, you know, and still to this day when I see someone older, I bow naturally and I go, what could you do, you know, and I say like weird things under my breath. They wanted the respect of being a leader among God's people without doing the one thing that they were asked to do as leaders of God's church. They wanted to have the best seats in the synagogue up front where people knew it was the honor seat. They wanted to invite the feasts and take the seat of honor, usually next to the host, the owner, the center of the attention at the U-ship table. All of this showing glimpse to what the central focus of their lives were. They had one calling but instead they use the system for their benefit. And Morris states in his commentary, evidently some of the scribes encouraged impressionable widows to make gifts beyond their means. Another reprehensible practice was to extortionate commissions for handling widows affairs because they weren't educated because they didn't know the law they were the experts and when widows went to them for help they would ask for extraordinary like high amounts of money that they knew that they couldn't afford thus literally eating them out of a house and a home they were literally and intentionally devouring the life of the widows, as if that was not enough, how were their consciences not pierced by this heinous act towards the most vulnerable? 
Leon Morris says again, their prayers featured length rather than death. There were prayers that gave the illusion of piety, but as they were offered in the presence, they availed nothing before God. They covered up their hunger for comfort using their power and showcasing false piety before the public, and so no one would ever question them because what they saw, they believed. They ate it up and perpetuated the cycle by continuing to display acts of piety before the people. All the while, they were described as those who devoured the widows. The Bible is pretty clear about what we call these people. In Matthew 7, 15, be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree will bear fruit, but the diseased tree will bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. These wolves in sheep's clothing continue to do things centered on themselves. They focused on what made them look holy so no one would ever contest what they were doing in secret. Their lack of self-awareness continued because of their faith in their false display of religious piety. And the statement that Jesus was making is, what good is your four-hour prayer meeting and all the displays of your serving if you can't see that it's all a cover-up for the ways you devour the most vulnerable and broken among you. You know, it reminds me of a powerful scene in A Few Good Men when everything is over, one of my favorite movies. And they were found not guilty of all the stuff, but they were honorably discharged from the Marine Corps. And Lieutenant Downey looks at Lieutenant Galloway and he goes, I don't understand. I thought we were cleared of the murder. I thought it was Jessup. And after the verdict was read, he says, I don't understand. Colonel Jessup said he ordered the code read. And he says, I know. Colonel Jessup said he ordered the code read. What did we do wrong? It's not that simple. What did we do wrong? We did nothing wrong. And Dawson says, yeah, we did. We were supposed to fight for people who couldn't fight for themselves. We were supposed to fight for Willie. God places people in leadership to protect those who cannot fight for themselves. Jesus wanted to bring the whole system down and build it back up, brick by brick, heart by heart. So Jesus sits at the temple, and he watches this woman that no one would notice, barely make her way to one of the giving baskets, and she takes everything that she has to two copper coins, that literally people would walk over. She was so poor that the commentator said if she gave nothing, 
that would be what was required of her. She had to believe in the moment that when she put those two coins in, that God would be trustworthy and sovereign and that he loved her enough that she would not be confident in the system because it already jacked her because all she had to live on was two useless copper coins. But she had to trust the God who continued to preserve her. And she takes it and she puts it in. Not one. You know, I was thinking when I was reading this text, she gave one. God would still love that. But she takes both. Where did she get this tiny bit, you have to ask, in the first place? It was most likely the provision of the religious leaders who distributed the offerings for all the widows to survive. The rich gave. They gave out of their abundance. So Jesus didn't come after the rich for giving. He was addressing what the women had and how it was more than all that the rich gave. So it wasn't a condemnation for the rich who gave. It was talking about the system that would allow everyone in the leadership to benefit except the one person it was meant for. The amount that they were given in that system became so corrupt that by the time it reached the people who needed it the most, there was barely enough to survive. So the question we have to ask is not why did she give so little? The real question is why did she have so little to live on? Who was supposed to provide for her. The temple system had failed her and all the vulnerable among her, and so Jesus judged their giving as amounting to less than nothing. It didn't matter how much they gave because it didn't serve the purpose it was for. They were using the name of God to remain comfortable and celebrated at the cost of those very people that they were supposed to protect. And so Bach states this. This contrast shows Luke's readers that sometimes those who appear to be blessed are not. That the people who look right, who say the right things, attend the right meetings, and look holy enough for the rest of the people may not be the blessed people of God. Jesus was indicating all of the leaders were benefiting from the corrupt system that continued to abuse those under their care. He was exposing them. She, under such a system of injustice and poverty, she still gave it all away with no guarantees and no security. She gave it out of absolute trust in the one who has provided for her even in this crazy system. Can you imagine the love that she has for the Lord? The deep, deep trust that she has for the Lord. Isn't that what Christianity is about? The affection that consumes our soul to give everything we have at any cost. The central message of the text wasn't just the contrasting of the offering of the rich versus the widow, but the main point of telling this story by Luke is that the widow and her amazing, faithful, and sacrificial giving point to the one true widow who didn't give little that she had in poverty, but rather the one 
true rich person who had more than all the riches in the world combined, and he gave it all away. He is the God, the Son who created all things, and all things belong to him. And instead of leveraging the system that he owned to abuse all those who were under his system, he gave away everything, including all that he possessed in the heavens and on earth for you and me who leverage the system for our comfort, who take advantage of the poor and the most needy among us. We are guilty of it, all of us. Not one of us is left out of that. And so this king of the universe gave it all because he wanted to address the very heart that took a godly system and destroyed it by their own sinfulness and brokenness. He gave it all so that one day soon, those who were once the ones who corrupted others would rise up to be ones who long for justice here on earth as it is done in heaven. We were not only financially destitute, but we are bankrupt in our souls, bound for hell. But he was rejected and became nothing so that those of us who had not even two pennies worth of good for God would be called children of God. What does this all mean? Every single one of us utterly bankrupt. Whether it is our own children that we've hurt by our selfishness and anger, whether it is our coworkers or employees that we've hurt by our selfishness and abuse of power, or it is our spouse that we've hurt by our selfishness and manipulation, we've all used our positions of power and privilege to leverage getting what we want in all circumstances by manipulation, intimidation. The call, I believe, is to first look at the beautiful one who would give it all, who had more than anyone else for us who had nothing to give. Then the second would be to repent. Repent not because you want to be pious. Repent because you see the beauty of the one who would turn over a system. That the most broken among us would have a chance. And then lastly, to point others to the one and not to ourselves because we have nothing to offer them. Our piety means nothing but rags before this world. So Christ-central, we must look at his beauty. We must repent of our own personal piety. And then we must point to the one who actually gave it all away. And only then can we become cheerful givers in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. I think it was a hard week. And as I was writing, I felt so protected 
by my Savior as I watched him enter into the temple. And as I looked at everyone walking past the widow and her offering, and I saw my Savior, said, you gave it all. And in you, it is more than anyone else who have ever walked into this temple gate. For the first time in her life, she felt seen. When the whole world would walk by her, she felt seen and known and loved. That's the Savior that we have. That's why we exist as a church. It is not about the leadership. It's about the Savior. And so we will go to our God. And we will say, God, have your way. Have your way in us. So let's take time and let's pray before God. Look at his beauty. Repent of our piety. And point others to the only beautiful one.